You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Letter of the Apostle Peter, and if you're using the Church Bible, you'll find that is on page 1218. We've been going through First Peter at a sedate pace, I think would be the right way to describe it, and this evening we have come to the beginning of chapter 2. We've been looking at First Peter as a letter specifically written by the Apostle Peter to Christians in a pre-Christian world, in a pre-Christian world, in which they are beginning and will taste more persecution. And we've, in general terms, seen the, the relevance of that to our own time in the sense that we are now living, at least in our country here, Uh, and increasingly in the Western world, in a post-Christian world. We've reached a stage now uh, in our societies, and this is as recently true in the United States as it is in Scotland, where governments are systematically dismantling biblical teaching. Governments have done that for years, ignorantly and accidentally, But now in the Western world, it's happening consciously and deliberately. And in a sense, there are two ways we can respond to that. We can respond to that in a kind of puddle-glum way and say, it it is so bad to be living in the 21st century, wish we were living in the 18th century. Or we can respond to that by realizing that the Bible takes on even more pressing relevance to our lives, and there is a kind of um, even excitement in discovering how relevant the Scriptures are. Just as an illustration of dismantling of Christianity, don't put your hand up, but how many of you come from the city of Edinburgh, which used to have Psalm 127 verse 1 as its motto? Now, maybe you know that if you came from Edinburgh, but if you came from anywhere else in Scotland, somehow or another, Edinburgh managed successfully to hide that connectedness to the Christian gospel. If you come from along the road in Glasgow, you know that the city of Glasgow motto is, let Glasgow flourish. But at some point, the fathers in the city of Glasgow managed to uh, abandon the rest of that motto by the preaching of God's Word and the praising of God's name. If you were a graduate of the University of Glasgow and in the days when you knew what the badge was, the motto was Via Veritas Vita, or for those of you who learned to speak Latin in a different culture, We Are Veritas Um, the way, the truth, and the life. So, that's what you go to university for, the way, the truth, and the life. And you don't graduate knowing, actually, it was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or if you graduated from the University of Aberdeen, you knew that the motto was, Initium Sapientiae, the beginning of wisdom. You weren't told that that's been stolen from Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, we mustn't think that the dismantling of the public impact of the Christian gospel is something that's just happened in our lifetime. It has been going on for about 250 years in the public sphere. And now, however, we've reached a point where it has broken through the surface, and we're able to hear as Christians with keener ears 
what it is that the Apostle Peter is saying to the churches in Turkey. And it's pretty remarkable to think that in his day, there may have been as many evangelical Turkish believers as there are today. So, if we're in a minority, we share, as Peter says, with brethren throughout the world. So, let's read these verses in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 1 to 8 this evening that continue to help us to understand this theme he's dealing with here. Remember, we respond to the world in which we live by living in a way that is holy, by responding to opposition in a manner that is godly, and by living together in a way marked by humility. And those are the three big lessons that Peter is teaching, and we are in the middle of the first of them. Therefore, says Peter, we are reading the New International Version, but I'm going to shade the translation a little, and you'll notice the two points at which I do it if you follow carefully. Therefore, he says, ridding yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So, to you who believe, there is honor. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. One of the big texts in 1 Peter is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, familiar to most of us Christians because Peter urges these Christians in what we nowadays call Turkey always to be ready, equipped, prepared to give a reason to anyone who asks them for the hope that is in them. And one of the things we've been noticing in First Peter is the apparent difference between these Christian believers in a pre-Christian world and the condition of many Christian believers and Christian churches in a post-Christian world. In a post-Christian world, many Christians find themselves racking their brains and using all of their imagination in order to get people to ask spiritual questions. The Christians Peter is addressing face a very different situation, very significantly. Their problem is not, how can I get these people to ask me questions about the gospel? Their issue is this, how can I answer the questions these people are asking me about the gospel? And the difference is vast and significant. And the reason for the difference, the palpable reason for the difference is because the fellowship of these Christians, the lifestyle of these Christians about which Peter is speaking, was so radically different from the world in which they lived that it prompted people to ask for an explanation. 
they were so clearly people characterized by hope because they were people who had been brought into a new humanity. This is what Peter had said in the first chapter. He said, you have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through whom you have been born again into a new kind of humanity. You stick out in the world as a different kind of people. Some of you will know that uh, in the very early days of the Christian church, Christians were described as a third race, a third race, different from any other kind of community. And so, Peter is speaking to them because he is conscious that their lives prompt people to ask questions about the gospel. The embarrassing, the the thing of which we should be ashamed in the 21st century church is that although the contrast between the Christian gospel and worldly thinking has become so dramatically obvious, there is not that vibrancy of hope, that transformation of life, that formation of this dynamic new gospel community that prompts people to ask, what's the explanation for this? Why do you people live this way? Why do you have this kind of hope in a world that is full of hopelessness? Peter is wanting to encourage that. And I think we may say the Spirit has given us this letter to rebuke us on the one hand if this is not true of our lives as a Christian fellowship, and to encourage us to believe that this is something that God does. He creates new fellowships. If ever there was a letter in the New Testament where we needed to remind ourselves that the you in the letter is always you plural, not you merely as an individual this would be the latter. And this would be the explanation why Peter's focus here in this passage is on the way in which we are being built together as living stones into a temple made of living people that is founded on the great living stone, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Peter is speaking to them now about the privileges that are theirs and the transformation that those privileges produce. There can be nothing more important in the world than that Christian churches be such vital families, such transformed communities, that the world is constrained to ask, why is it that we go into Monday morning in a different way from those who are not Christians? constrained to ask for an explanation why the relationships between Christians are so dramatically different from the relationships between non-Christians. And it's because this is what the gospel produces that we can be so enthusiastic about the teaching that Simon Peter is giving to us here. Now, it looks as though, certainly in the New International Version and in many of the other versions, it looks as though uh, Peter is issuing to us a series of exhortations or imperatives. But actual fact, there is only one exhortation in this passage, only one imperative. If you're using a translation that has more than one, for example, uh, the New International Version begins, therefore rid yourselves of all malice. Uh, Just as a brief grammatical lesson, that isn't an imperative at all. Uh, Instead of being an imperative, uh, that is, that's simply another form of the verb. Perhaps you can illustrate it like this. Those of you who remember your grandmother uh, giving you money uh, and saying to you, when you buy my newspaper, get yourself a chocolate bar. 
There's only one command in that sentence. Get yourself a chocolate bar. But you heard us two commands, didn't you? The first was, you are going to get my newspaper, so go and get it. So, in English, we use participles of the verb sometimes as imperatives, implied exhortations. And the same thing is happening here, and apparently the translators thought they should translate it as an exhortation, as an imperative. I think that's probably mistaken. I think what Peter is saying here is, I'm giving you one command. It's this, desire the pure spiritual milk of the Word. But alongside that command, holding that command up, intimately related to that command, there are two things going on in your life. One is that you're in the process of putting certain things off, and he says that in verse 1. And the other is, you are in the process of something being done to you. So, one command that is supported by something we are doing, and on the other hand, supported by something the Lord is doing in us. And if you can get hold of that structure, what Peter is saying, I think, will become fairly clear. So, let's begin with the central command. Uh, You'll see it in verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Crave pure spiritual milk. Now, what does he mean by milk? The adjective he uses here is, is the adjective from which we get the English word logic got to do with reasoning and communication, which is why the older translations translated this something like desire the pure milk of the Word. What he wants us to focus on, first of all, is that we, that we have a baby-like craving for spiritual nourishment. He's not addressing them as baby Christians. He's not saying to them, you're spiritual infants, and so I can only feed you with milk, as you remember Paul says to the Corinthians. He's saying, no, he's saying in your, in your attitude towards, in your hunger for the spiritual nourishment that, of course, comes from the Word of God, in your desire for that, be like hungry infants. Um, It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? I mean, around here we see in our church plenty of hungry infants. And uh, there's, there's nothing more striking than to watch maybe a father, a, a father practicing, you know, getting as near to being a mother as he can with a bottle in his hand, a baby here, and sticking the thing in the baby's mouth. And this amazing capacity babies seem to have to devour the milk. It's astonishing, isn't it? Now, that's the picture he wants us to have in our minds. He's saying this is the way in which we are going to grow up into the fullness of salvation. Look at his words again. Like newborn babies craves pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. He's saying this is, this is what makes us grow up. It's the nourishment that we take in. And, and he's saying just, just have a picture in your mind about how I want you to grow through the nourishment you get through the teaching of the Word of God. Now, of course, these people, they didn't even have their own copies of First Peter. Maybe they, some of them were able to take it down. Maybe numbers of them couldn't read or write. They didn't have anything like the privileges that, that you and I have. And so they were, they were, the Word was read to them and memorized by them. 
and discussed by them and expounded to them. And presumably every person who brought one of these New Testament letters to a church was expected to expound it to the church. What did Paul mean when he said that? It gives you half an hour explanation. He, he expounds or preaches the word. And this was how the, this was how the Christians imbibed the spiritual nourishment of the Word of God. It, it, was like, it was like milk to a hungry baby, and they just could not get enough of it. Now, see the connectedness between that and the fact that non-Christians were asking them questions about being a Christian. And the disconnectedness in many of our churches. I mean, why would it surprise us that the professing church in Scotland would make so little impact upon Scotland if there is no desire for the spiritual milk of the Word, where it is despised? where intelligent, professing Christian people are told by ministers, I don't expect you to be able to follow me for anything longer than 11 minutes. No wonder the church is so weak. No wonder the church makes so little impact. Think about what Paul did in Ephesus. For almost three years, he gathered the Christians together for about five hours a day, and he poured the Word of God into them. What was the result? We are told that people all over Asia, that's ancient Asia, not modern Asia, people all over Asia felt the impact of the way in which he was nourishing the children of God with the Word of God. And uh, Peter is encouraging us to have that kind of, that kind of hunger. I mean, if we, if we are a flabby church or if we're a flabby individual Christian, part of the reason is because we haven't, we haven't satisfied an appetite. Do you know, the early Christians after the period of the apostles did some strange things. Uh, as Christians always do, they had these really clever ideas, and then they took those clever ideas and, and they treated them as though they found them in the Scriptures. One of the very interesting ideas, however, that emerged in the, in the third century was this. When somebody was converted to Christ, in the process from being converted to coming to the Lord's table, first of all, they were baptized, and then before they were brought to the Lord's table, they were given something. I wonder if you know what it was. They were given a cup with milk and honey in it. Can you work out why? Remember how the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your, your words are sweeter to me than honey? And how Peter is saying here, desire the pure milk of the word. They were, they were, they were, they were teaching them a, a, a a visual lesson, weren't they? That as you live the Christian life, as you're nourished by knowing that you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, and as you're nourished by fellowship with Him at the Lord's table, they were saying, right in the middle of that, you need to know this, that your central nourishment is going to come from developing an appetite for the milk of the Word of God and for it to taste like honey on your lips. I think that they may have got that out of what Peter actually goes on to say here from the 34th Psalm. He says, you will grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, there's the key. You see, if the Word of God is not honey when we taste it, if it's not milk that nourishes and matures us, um, then either we will never taste that the Lord is good, because that's the only place He reveals Himself to us, 
or it is because we have never tasted that the Lord is good. And so his great exhortation to us is that we should desire the pure spiritual milk of the word. Um, That we should be as one of those great Anglican collects from uh, the, the book of common prayer says, those who, as we hear the word of God, should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. I think we have lost sight of that in, the, in modern Christianity. We don't read the Word of God very much. Don't meditate on the Word of God very much. And we don't seem to be the kind of Christians who evidently have tasted the goodness of the Lord and the kindness of the Lord. And so we make up our own Christianity, don't we? I think one of the most, the most disappointing things the Lord Jesus must find about the contemporary church is how little we have resort to what He says to us in the Scriptures and how much rather we resort to how we would like to do church ourselves, and how we would like to do the Christian life ourselves, and how we can get by without having very much of the Word of God. But you see, if we haven't, if we haven't been nurtured and nourished on the Word of God, then very little of Christ is going to be manifested in our lives, because we've learned very little of Christ from the Word of God. Don't you sometimes think that one of the things that makes us so ashamed is if somebody stuck us in a, in a dark room and said, I want you to go and sit there just for 15 minutes and think about Jesus. Just think about Jesus for 15 minutes. You know, within five minutes, we might be wanting somebody to turn on the light. Why would that be the case when we profess to love him, it's because we may not know enough about him to think lovingly of him for 15 minutes. So, this is a great key that Peter is giving to us. That's, that's why I think it is actually the single big exhortation that he's giving to us in these verses. But it's supported on both sides. On one side, it's supported by what it is that we are doing. Now, you, could, you can take this as an exhortation if you want, as the New International Version does. In a sense, we all need to take it as an exhortation, as an imperative. But it's pretty clear that Peter assumes that it's, it's actually happening in our lives. That for, for an appetite to develop for the pure spiritual milk that will nourish us, there are, there are things that need to go because they spoil our appetite. You're not supposed to eat chocolate before your evening meal. Isn't that true, boys and girls? I, I, you know, somebody said that to you. You're, you're not getting a Mars bar at 4.30 because you're going to have your dinner at 5.30. And we grown-ups, we piously say that to our children. Then spiritually we break the rules. And we're engaged in all kinds of characteristics that spoil the appetite. And I think what's so significant here is that Peter is concerned about the appetite of the church family for the Word of God. And so, what spoils that? What, as he says here, what we need to put away because it spoils the appetite has actually got to do with our relationships, yes, to the Lord and also to one another. And you'll see the list that he makes. He says, Therefore, he says, ridding yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, 
and slander of every kind. You notice those, those are not elements of how I view myself and how I treat myself. Those are fellowship elements. He's saying now there are, there are characteristics in your life that can have the effect of marring the appetite of the whole church family. Now, you know, you, of course, if you're in St. Peter's, you're, you know, you're a member of an almost spotless, perfect church and this kind of thing, you know. But if you've been a member of any other church, you know this is true. You, 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 may, even, you may even have thought, I, I can't understand what is going on in our church, but there must be something going on underneath the surface because there doesn't seem to be the outpoured, promised blessing of God on us. And here's the explanation. There's malice, which means there's somebody I actually wish ill of and for. Don't think that happens in churches. Time to read the New Testament. Time to reflect. Somebody in the church who actually bears an ill will to somebody else in the church and deceit. That is to say, in order to get my way, I'm prepared to trick and deceive you. And then he says hypocrisy. I'm willing to pretend to be something other than I am, usually more pious than I am, in order to get my way. And then he says there's envy. I'm jealous of what somebody else has, a gift, a position. I want that position. Why don't I have that gift? You know, if you're a minister of a good number of years, you may have grown weary with the number of people who have come to you and complained to you, why is this church not recognizing my gift? You know what the answer to that is? Because you aren't using your gift in our church on your bended knees before others and saying, like Paul, I want to become your servant for Jesus' sake. All you're interested in is that people recognize your position. But Jesus never gives any gift to any of his children simply for their own sake, but so that we have something to give to the fellowship, to the church family. And, and then he says, there's slander. He says, now, you are putting these things off, aren't you? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. What's slander? Well, slander can, can be anything from passing on something for prayer. And if deceit and hypocrisy is your line, then you will have done that. I'm just mentioning this to you for prayer. And what you do is you slander somebody. It's murder by using words. Like every mother of my generation, my mother would frequently say to me, Sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And it wasn't true. She knew it wasn't true, and it wasn't true. It did hurt. Because you can kill with words. You can so easily destroy the reputation of someone in the church just by, just by a few words. You can cause somebody who trusts a Christian friend to become suspicious of that Christian friend and mar a sweet friendship forever just by a few words. And Peter's saying, you are putting these things off, aren't you? Because otherwise the church will become like Ai, won't it? And the sin of Achan, when the church family loses its power to serve because uh, these things are present inside the camp, and Peter is saying, you are, I believe you are putting these things off, aren't you? And that what is being manifested instead, as we saw last time, is that you love one another 
with a fervency that marks the heart. Or to put this in the context of what he's going on to say, the Word of God, the spiritual nourishment of the gospel is so invading you, you are so drinking it in, that it's pushing these things out of your life. We understand it's never that we have got to tighten our fists and say, I've got to try and be better. It's that the Word itself, as we gulp it in like a newborn baby, begins to press these things out of our lives and to press into our lives. This dramatic transformation about which Peter has already been speaking. So, as a people longing for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, and in a way that's tested every Sunday when we come to worship, isn't it? Looking forward to the, the opening of the Word and its application and just to, just to being there and, and letting it, just letting it pour over me and cleanse me. That's what Jesus prayed, isn't it, Lord? Father, make them clean through your Word. It's cleansing power. And he's saying that is as that is going on, then he's saying your, your appetite will be sharper for the pure spiritual milk. But uh, if, if this isn't going on, if all of this garbage is there in myself or in our church family, then it's, it's, going, to, it's going to spoil the appetite. I don't know exactly how that happens. I just know it does happen. And as someone who preaches, you can usually sense it happening. Or as someone who's a member of the church fellowship, you can, you can feel it and, and say, why is it that the Word of God is not making a deeper impact on us? And the answer is because all this stuff is choking the Word of God, as Jesus said. But then, Alongside that, there's, there's something he is doing that accompanies this hunger for spiritual nourishment. On our side, we are, we are putting away anything that would spoil our appetite. And on his side, he is building us into this wonderful new fellowship and, and like living stones in in the temple he is building, he's, he's, he's bringing us close to one another. And you see the imagery he uses is from the temple, isn't it? From, the, from Isaiah, from the Psalms, the idea that Jesus is the cornerstone of a new temple. So that, of course, in the, when, when Adam and Eve lived in a garden, that garden was God's temple, and he met with them there. And when they were going through the wilderness, there was a tent, and he met with them there. And when they lived in the city of Jerusalem, there was a temple, and he met with them there. But his, his ultimate purpose was that his people would live all over the world. And so the temple would be a spiritual temple. And of that spiritual temple, Jesus Christ himself would be the chief cornerstone or of a local church family, Jesus Christ would be the chief cornerstone so that everybody in the church would have as the big question, the elders would have as the big question, the, the church family would have as the big question, not, first of all, how are we going to get on with each other? But first of all, how are we going to arrange ourselves Round the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Now, I am no architect, but I think I understand this, that the cornerstone determines everything. Jesus Christ determines everything. And then, says Peter, he's, he's building us into this new temple of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and he is arranging us together. Now, it's very interesting in that at least uh, I, I understand this is, the, this is the way to read the, 
building of the temple, that uh, those 80,000 people who were stonemasons of these vast, vast stones that constituted the temple, they did all their work off-site. And then the stones were brought and, and they were perfectly fitted together because these master craftsmen had, had worked on the stones in, in order that one stone would fit with another and one stone would, would fit with another. That's easy. If 80,000 stonemasons and all, all this stone, that, that's easy. But turn what Peter says into a cartoon, like cartoon in your newspaper. In the cartoon, a temple is being built, but the stones have hands and feet. The stones have ears and sensibilities and likes and dislikes, and some of them have very big mouths, and some of them have very bad tempers. And Jesus Jesus is not building the temple off-site. Jesus is building the temple here, and he's taking you, and he's taking me, and he's actually going to fit us together so that we eventually fit together perfectly. That's why there's no room here for malice and envy and hypocrisy and deceit and slander. There's no, there's no room for, for that garbage to, to get in the way of what, what Jesus is doing. If I can put it this way, not that Jesus has problems, but if Jesus had a problem, the, the problem would be that he's to sometimes fit us together kicking and screaming because we, we don't want to go there. We don't want to do that. We, we don't want to fit with him. We, we, want the, we want to be Frank Sinatra, don't we? To do church my way. It should be like the way I want it. And we end up just being like the world where people are, are position climbers and, and want their own way and want their own will. And he's saying, no, Jesus is the chief cornerstone and everything and everyone and everybody is to be arranged around the Lord Jesus. And dear friends, he's saying, hey, he is actually, he is the great stonemason. And he's going to chop some pieces off you. He will usually do it slowly. Sometimes he will do it dramatically. So that eventually he will fit you together. In such a fellowship, such a community, however imperfect it may still be here. A fellowship that makes non-Christian people ask. Just tell me again how you did this. Just give me an explanation for this. And of course, I mean, this is the wonderful thing, in a way the exciting thing about living in a post-Christian world. In every respect, this is the case. In the way the old and the young are together. In the way the men and the women are together. In the way the men and the men are together and the women and the women are together. And all are together. The gray hairs are together. And the no hairs are together. And the, the rich, or at least comparatively rich, are together. And the poor are together. And the educated are together. The uneducated are together. And the various ethnicities are together. And it's safe to be together. And as the Scriptures say, we end up outdoing one another in love. The seminary in which I used to teach, there used to be a joke about two particular people uh, on the campus. One was, we pray that they will never arrive at the door to the library at the same moment, because neither of them will go in first, and we'll all be stuck outside. And we say, no, you first, no. You first. Professor so-so, no, you first. No, Professor so-so, you first. 
That's not the world, is it? That's not your world tomorrow. Nor was it your world on Friday. I mean, it's not rocket. The life of the church is not rocket science, but it is supernatural grace. And Peter is saying, look, he's, he's building us together. And yes, he's producing this glorious new temple. And yes, we don't forget that this Jesus Christ, God's stone, who is for us the cornerstone, is also going to be for others the stumbling stone. Uh, we're not naive in our expectations of the impact that Christ will make on the world through his church. We're not naive about that because we know that some will find it a stumbling block. Remember how I wonder if as Peter wrote these words, he was thinking this. He was thinking, you know, the first time I quoted these words, I was standing in Jerusalem and the very people who had rejected the cornerstone were standing in front of me. And I said to them, you see this new temple that Jesus Christ is building, these thousands of people who have come to faith. You see that in the name of Jesus Christ, this man has been healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. You have heard the preaching. You see the transformation. But you were supposed to be the builders and you rejected the cornerstone. And as he says here, you stumbled and have fallen as you were destined to do. So he understands that. But he also understands that none of that can in any sense reduce the the beautiful new temple that Jesus Christ is building of living stones. This third race of men, this new humanity, that causes non-Christians to ask, how did you do this with your family? I've never forgotten being at a dinner with probably the most noble people I've ever met in terms of British ennoblement and being asked by one of them, How is it that you do these things and make a family? And here's the answer. We're hungry for the Word of God. And it really does the rest. It pushes out from us the the malice and the deceit and the envy and the hypocrisy and the slander as it fills us with the love of Jesus Christ and as he takes us and shapes us and fits us together so that we discover, it it may take some time for us to discover this, but we discover that we're just sitting on our own one day and, and someone else in the church family comes into our minds and we think, when I met them, first of all, I thought, there is no way in a thousand years I'm ever going to be able to get on with her. But now we're sisters. Or with him. But now we're brothers. There's nothing in the world can produce that. It constrains people to say, how in heaven Did this happen? And you're able to say, well, in a way, you've answered your own question. It's because of what happened in heaven that this is happening on earth. So may this be more and more true of us and of the churches for which we have a special concern and care. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is building his church We're conscious that the gates of hell continue to attack it and seek to destroy it, but we praise you that nothing can overcome the building plan of our Savior Jesus.
And we want to yield to that. We, we want to yield to that here in our own church family. And very consciously remember that Jesus is the cornerstone. And very deliberately find ourselves putting off whatever mars our appetite or, or gives us a taste for sin in any way. So that as you build us together, we may grow closer and closer to you as we are formed around Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. We thank you for all that he has done in order to build us into this church family and the other church families that are represented here this evening. And we pray that you would so come upon us in these families to which we belong, that men and women and boys and girls and young people may, may be constrained to ask, what is the reason for the hope of these people in such a hopeless world? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.